Well, while they're going there, I ask that you would take uh, your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be finishing up. We're actually going to be spending most of our time in chapter 7. Uh, but we want to start this morning with the final verse of chapter 6. Well, every vote counts, or so I have been told, uh, with margins of victory coming down to less than, in some, some places, less than 50,000 votes, uh, as they did this week in the presidential election, I think we've seen how important it is for people to exercise their civic duty to vote. We all have to do our part. We have a responsibility, and we have to, we have to exercise the responsibility of the freedom we enjoy, or we'll risk losing it altogether. And yet... There's always this deep frustration that comes with casting your vote, only to find that the person you voted for didn't win. Uh, earlier this week, notwithstanding any results as they're coming out, but earlier this week as I was mulling over what was going to happen with the election, I realized that in all my tenure as a voter, I have actually never had the presidential candidate that I voted for win. And I started thinking, maybe I should vote for the other guy. Um, <laughs> When you cast your vote for the person that you want to lead and they don't win, it makes voting feel like an exercise of futility. Because even though you have made your voice heard, it's like someone else has gotten to make the decision. And in that case, it's hard to feel like you have any sort of control. And that's frustrating because you know that the policies and the priorities of the person in leadership don't match yours. You're at the mercy of their decision-making, and you know you'll have to bear the consequences of their decisions and the decisions that are made, being made by someone else. And that is just plain frustrating. It feels unfair, maybe even a little tyrannical. On our passage this morning, we're looking at how the decision of one man, Achan, led to disaster for the entire nation of Israel. We may think that our sin only affects us, but Achan proves differently. And we have a lot to learn from this passage about how sin affects us individually and corporately. And we also have a chance to learn about how God has determined to rescue his people from their sin. So let's begin by reading our passage. I'll be starting in chapter 6, verse 27, but I'll be reading through chapter 7 uh, to verse 26. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. <clears throat> so about three thousand men went up from there, went up there from the people, and they fled 
before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now, What you have done, do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. 
And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned, stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, Achan made a terrible decision to defy the command of God. And his decision had terrible consequences, not only for himself, but for his family, and even the entire nation of Israel. The story of Achan and of Achan's sin is a warning to us to take our sin seriously. But it also gives us an opportunity to consider some foundational truths about how God has purposed to rescue us from the very source of our disobedience. So our main idea this morning, main idea of our passage, is that God's plan of salvation isn't just to rescue us from our sins, but to rescue us from the source of our sin. And in our time this morning, we're going to be exploring three big themes that help us to see our main idea. We're going to be looking at what Achan did, the impact that his decision had on him, his family, and the nation of Israel. And then we're going to be looking at how God works to rescue his people from our acts of disobedience and from the cause of our disobedience. So this morning, we're asking three big questions. What did Achan do? What were the consequences of what he did? And what did God do about it? So we're going to begin this morning by looking at what Achan actually did. Well, Joshua 6, the part of the reason why we started with Joshua 6, verse 27, is because it ends on this glorious mountaintop. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Man, we would just love to see the book end right there. That's great. The world took notice when God crushed Jericho. Everything that God told Joshua when he called him into service is coming true. The people are in the land. The first encounter that the, Israel, the Israelites have had with a Canaanite strong power has been a total success. The Lord was with Joshua as he had promised he would be. He had exalted Joshua as the leader of his people. But Joshua 7 verse 1 tells us the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. We go from this mountaintop to this low valley. A phantom menace lurks in the camp of Israel. A shadow, a stain on the victory at Jericho. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, a man of the tribe of Judah, we read, took some of the things that had been devoted to the Lord for himself. These were gods, but Achan took them. Now, let's rewind just for a moment and look back at Joshua 6, verse 18, where Joshua had warned the people, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest... When you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 
Now, when we were looking at the Battle of Jericho, we saw uh, uh, some important truths. We saw that God fought the Battle of Jericho. He was the one who gave victory to Israel that day. He wielded uh, the army of Israel like a sword and brought righteous justice down on a wicked city. But as he did, he also warned Israel not to pollute themselves with the things that were inside. He warned them not to take the things that he had rightfully claimed as his own. But Achan didn't listen. He took of the devoted things. And, and the second part of Joshua 7 verse 1 says that the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now what led Achan to do such a foolish thing? How could he be so selfish? Who did he think he was to steal from God? Even after God had brought Achan and his family and his people into a good land, into the land of his promise, into the land of his favor, into the land of his very presence. How could Achan throw that all away and then put the entire nation in the path of God's anger? Well, let's explore that for a few minutes because I think that as we do, we'll get a better understanding about how sin operates. So as we understand Achan better, I think we actually learn better how to understand ourselves. Now, I doubt that Achan had any premeditated plans on stealing from God when he woke up the morning of that seventh day and strapped on his armor. His crime really seems to be one of opportunity. He saw something, he wanted it, he took it. Even so, it's clear that while Achan prepared himself for combat on the streets of Jericho, he did not prepare himself for the assault that sin and temptation were about to launch against his own heart. It's not as if this cloak, the silver, and the gold jumped into Achan's pocket without his knowledge. He took them deliberately, even though he had been warned not to. And rather than devoting his own sinful passions to death, Achan decided to surrender to them. Whatever defenses then Achan had erected in his heart and in his mind to fend those temptations off, they were undone in a moment because he believed three lies, lies that we also believe when we give in to sin. So what I want to do in our first point here is to look at these three lies. First, the first lie that Achan believed is that Achan believed he would be happier if he took these forbidden things for himself. Achan believed he would be happier if he took these forbidden things for himself. He believed that an exotic cloak, some silver and some gold would make him happy. And so he took them and disregarded God's clear command. In verses 20 through 21, we see that Achan explains to Joshua that when he saw these things among the spoil of the city, this, this fine cloak, the silver and the gold, he coveted them. He wanted them. And so he took them to be his, even though they, he knew that they had been claimed by God for God. There's something that feels really familiar about what we see Achan do that day, as if we've seen this before. And that's because we have. We've seen this same lie before in the Garden of Eden. And we've seen this same lie in our own hearts. When Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, God blessed them with everything that they could ever want. 
The only stipulation he laid on them was that they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when the serpent came to tempt them, we see that he actually began by undermining Adam and Eve's confidence in what God had spoken to them. He called God a liar and said that if Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat of, they would be God's equals. He said, you'll be happier if you don't listen to what God says. He promised that they would enjoy themselves better, that that real joy comes with disobedience, even though God had warned them that in the very day that they ate of that fruit, they would surely die. All sin begins that way. If sin is a tree, then its root is unbelief. Its trunk is disobedience. And its fruit is death. The reason sin is so serious is because it is high-handed treason against a good and loving God. It isn't merely a mistake. It It is a rebellion against the one true holy, righteous God. It is the inversion of everything that is good and holy. Sin is the preference of death to life, of destruction to creation, of evil to good. And that is why sin is so foul. Achan thought that a shirt can make him happy. He thought a few more coins in his pocket could bring him enduring pleasure. And so he traded the blessings of an infinite, benevolent God for temporary, cursed things. Now, make so mistake. Initially, Achan most certainly did find some pleasure in what he had done. Stolen bread is sweet. There's a thrill, an adrenaline rush of being a rebel. But as we find in this this passage, although Achan's sin was sweet in his mouth, it turned bitter in his stomach, and then it became lethal in his veins. Achan thought he could be happier if he took what God had forbidden for him to have, but when he believed the the lie and he acted on his sinful passion, he found himself trapped in the snare of terrible trouble. Sin is attractive because it looks pleasant and it promises happiness a lemon tree is very pretty and the lemon flower is sweet but the fruit of the poor lemon is impossible to eat and so it is with sin now besides believing that Achan besides believing he would be happier if he disobeyed God the second lie that we see Achan believed was that he could hide his sin from God Achan believed he could hide his sin from God. It certainly seems that Achan uh, was able to hide what he had done from the rest of the camp. Uh, Joshua has no idea. However, however, he managed to steal away this cloak and silver and gold. He obviously managed it to get it into his tent to bury it away where no one else could see. The fact that Achan hid his treasure shows that he really was fully aware of what he had done, of how wrong it was. Clearly, he was aware of Joshua's warning, or he wouldn't have bothered to hide it the way that he did. What's more, when we look at verse 20, we see that Achan openly admits that he had sinned against God. There's no way that he could say he was ignorant about what he did, or as if it was an accident, something that happened to him. That being being the case, we have to ask ourselves, why did Achan do it? 
Well, the only explanation is that even though he knew it was wrong, he thought he could get away with his sin. He thought that by carefully concealing what he had done, no one would be the wiser, and he'd be able to enjoy the fruit of his sin without anybody ultimately knowing any differently. Once again, we see Achan takes on the pattern of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. If, if you're familiar uh, with Genesis 3, when we, if you go to Genesis 3, we're, we're told there that Adam and Eve believed the serpent's lie, they ate of the forbidden fruit, their eyes were immediately opened to their nakedness, and they became ashamed of themselves because of their sin. They saw what had been created to be beautiful and lovely was now marred and dirty and stained. So, to cover it up, they sewed fig leaves together. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves from him in a vain attempt to to cover up what they had done. God can't see me. It's hard to imagine how Achan planned to explain later on how he came about these riches. I doubt he had plans to leave them buried under his tent forever. When we sin, we are rarely thinking about such things like that. We're actually thinking about how confident we are in our ability to hide things away from the view of others. We cloak our disobedience in shadows of good intentions. Or we we pile good works over them so that people will see those and not our disobedience, not our sin. We gerrymander our ethical principles in attempt to excuse our transgressions. And then we distract our conscience by, uh, and our conviction. We escape conviction by pointing to the sins of others and saying, well, I'm not as bad as they are. Achan believed that he could hide his sin. But he believed a lethal lie and his sin found him out. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jesus warns in Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The Lord sees what is in our hearts. We may bury our sin in the sand like Achan did, or we may hide it in the deepest shadow of our heart, telling us that we've hidden it in a place where no one can ever find it. But the reality is that God knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows how we feel. It is a lethal lie to think that we can hide our sin from His watchful eye. Secret sin is sin nonetheless, and God is not mocked. It is this second lie that we see somehow, um, that we can somehow manage to hide our sin from God and from others, which is most dangerous, because I find that oftentimes it's this lie that pushes us to pleasure ourselves in what we know is wrong. We're convinced we'll be able to hide it, and so we're lured into sin's shadow, unaware that God's eyes are able to penetrate even the darkest night. Achan hid his sin well, but it was revealed ultimately because while he was able to hide the cloak and the silver and the gold away from everyone else, he couldn't hide the consequences of breaking covenant with God. And that leads us to consider the third lie that Achan believed. The third lie Achan believed is that he believed that his sin would only affect him, that it would remain a private affair. Achan believed his sin was something that only affected him. 
The stunning feature of this story is the way that Achan's sin had consequences, not only for him, but for his family and the entire nation of Israel. When you read Joshua 7, you're supposed to see verse 1 as the prelude that explains to you why Israel was defeated at Ai. Ai was located close to Jericho, though it lacked the same glory and prestige that Jericho had. Uh, Judging from what we read in Joshua 8, there were about 12,000 men and women who lived there at the time. Joshua's method of operation was very similar to the way he approached Jericho. We see in verse 2, he, he sends uh, spies out to scout the city. When they return, uh, they told Joshua, don't worry about sending everyone up. They felt as if this, this place could be captured with about two or 3,000 of Israel's warriors. Uh, and they just didn't think it was worth sending the entire army up this hill to such a backwater town. Well, Joshua listened to the advice of the spies. He sent a detachment of about 3,000 men to the city. But we find that when the battle started, the men of Ai were actually able to drive Israel back. And they killed 36 men. That's really not a lot, I think, when you think that Joshua sent 3,000 men to fight at Ai. But maybe it is, because when we look at the battle of Jericho, our author doesn't tell us that any of the Israelites perished. So, with Ai being the small town that it was, the fact that Israel was defeated there was devastating. It was devastating, not so much because of the cost of Israelite lives, but because the defeat at Ai was the complete reversal of the victory we saw at Jericho. We see in verse 5 that the Israelites actually become, they take on traits of the Canaanites. Their hearts melt within them. They become like water. Joshua seems to be, he shares in their concern. In verse 8, we see that he's afraid that the rest of the Canaanites will hear about how Israel was defeated by this little town. They'll gain confidence, they'll rally together and fight Israel as one, and Israel will be destroyed altogether because if it can't take over Ai, what on earth is it going to do against a coalition of Canaanites? And Joshua is afraid that Israel will not take possession of the land that God said he was going to give to them. Joshua is worried about the very basic promises that God said he was going to to fulfill. Now, there are differences in the way that Joshua proceeded at Ai, which caused some scholars to think that Israel was, was defeated there because maybe they took victory for granted or because they had forgotten victory was from the Lord. Uh, There may be some truth to that. I mean, if I was going to attack a town of 12,000 people, I'd send more than 3,000 guys. But when we look at verse 1, and we combine it with what we read in verses 12 through 13, we see that this chapter makes it very clear that the primary cause of Israel's defeat was Achan's sin. God got Israel's attention through this defeat. Something was wrong with the camp. And until that thing was dealt with, God makes it clear that the people will go no further in taking the possession of his promised land. Achan sinned on his own. But it affected the entire camp of Israel. 36 men lost their lives because Achan did not fear the Lord and failed to honor him with rightful obedience. The story of Achan shows us how corrosive sin is. Like a, like a person starting a brush fire, Achan chose to risk getting burned by the fire of God's anger. But in the process, he managed to set himself and his neighbor's house on fire too. That effect makes Achan's sin all the more serious and terrible. 
And it shows us that while we may convince ourselves that our sin is a private matter, the reality is that it has a real effect on everyone around us. Sin is costly, not just to us, but to those we love. Adultery poisons more than the relationship between a husband and a wife. It wrecks families. It undermines neighborhoods. It destroys communities. Prideful selfishness places us at odds with everyone around us so we see them as a competitor. Lying betrays the truth and makes it so that we have to suspect everyone. How many of you locked your, your car before you walked in here? You're at church. and you lie. I lock my car everywhere I go because I suspect people. There is no such thing as a private sin. Because sin is like a poison that seeps into the ground and poisons the whole water table that everyone else drinks from. We may think that our sin is our own business, that no one else should be allowed to to confront us or judge us, but Aiken shows us that really isn't true. Sin makes everyone suffer, and therefore God was not about to let Aiken's sin go unaddressed. He was going to deal with it. Which brings us to our second point, where we see the consequences of Achan's sin. When Joshua saw how Ai had defeated the 3,000 men he had sent, we're told that he tore his clothes, fell on the earth with his face before uh, the ark of the Lord until evening. He and all the elders of Israel did this. They, They put dust on their heads. This is a sign of mourning. And Joshua prayed, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought the people of, uh, over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs and fled before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua's response to Israel's defeat is really interesting. Uh, To a certain extent, it feels like Joshua is interceding for Israel the way Moses did when the people had angered God. But there's also a certain flavor to what he has to say to God that sounds a little bit like the complaints, the murmuring of the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. I think it's best here to deal charitably with Joshua He had no idea what Achan had done. He had no idea that Achan had broken faith with God by taking what was devoted from Jericho. Furthermore, Joshua had lived events similar to this at Kadesh Barnea where the people refused to go into Canaan the first time and where God, when when God says, well, I'm not going to take you to land at all, and they say, "Well, well, well, we'll go, and they run back and they're destroyed because God did not fight for them. You have to, Joshua is replaying his whole life. And he's afraid of what's about to happen because he's seen, this, he's seen this story before and it wasn't pretty. Now, setting the drama of what Joshua prays aside, I think he is to be commended for the way he responded to bad news by going to God in prayer and for the regard we see that he has for the glory of God's name. This is the right way to pray to God when we're in distress. We are to understand that God is able to deliver us and that also that he acts for his great name which he has placed on us if we're, in, if, we're, if we're united to him by faith. So Joshua understood the covenant relationship that existed between God and Israel and we see here that as he responds to this defeat he's not so much prioritizing Israel as he's prioritizing God's own glory. 
It's why he mourns and prays this way he does when he uh, when Israel is defeated. Now, what I do love about God's response to Joshua is that it just cuts through the drama to get to the real issue. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. This is why Israel was defeated at Ai. They broke God's covenant. In verse 12, God tells Joshua that until this breach in covenant is dealt with, Israel cannot hope to stand before their enemies because he will not fight for them. Last week, we saw that God destroyed Jericho for its disobedience and for its unbelief. In holding Israel accountable for Achan's sin, God shows that he doesn't have double standards. In taking of the devoted things of Jericho, Israel had become like Jericho in its corruption. And God is punishing Israel for this. He tells Joshua, I will be with you no more until you destroy the devoted things from among you. Now, just a quick word. Uh, the, that word you there is plural. So God is actually saying, I will not be with Israel. Um, just to explain that, um, so it's not as if God is upending his promises to Joshua. He is speaking uh, corporately about the nation of Israel when he speaks there. Um, but that takes us to seeing uh, the actual discovery of Achan's transgression is outlined for us in verses 14 through 24. It is a lengthy process. It is described in great detail. In the Old Testament, one of the unique ways that God would make his will known to the nation of Israel was with the Urim and the Thummim, uh, which are two dye that were carried in the ephod, the vest of the high priest. I expect that's what our author means when he's referring uh, and when he says that... Um, uh, the, the, he said that the tribes and the clans and the household were taken or caught by lot. When Joshua does what God commands, Achan's sin is revealed, and he confesses his crime in verse 20. The cloak, the silver, and the gold are discovered. They're buried underneath his tent, and there were four consequences to his sin. And that's what we want to look at here. Um, interestingly enough, the majority of this, these consequences affected people other than Achan. We we'll look at these four consequences. First, we see that Achan's sin resulted in a broken covenant between God and Israel. It resulted in a broken covenant. It is stunning to think that the actions of one man could plunge an entire nation into such trouble. But in verse 11, God clearly explains to Joshua that Israel had sinned and, the, and transgressed the covenant that he had made with them. God outlines the charges there in the second part of verse 11. He says, They have taken some of the devoted things, which we remember, if you remember back to Leviticus 27, verse 28, those were under a ban. So they're breaking the law by taking that. They have stolen and they have lied. Go back to the Ten Commandments. And they have taken those things and coveted them for themselves and put them among their own belongings. Now God knew that Achan was the perpetrator. In verse 15, uh, he says, He who has taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So in one statement, God is speaking corporately about how Israel has broken the covenant, but then he also explains that this is the action of one person. 
So there's corporate consequences uh, for one individual action. Achan sinned against the Lord individually, but his disobedience was a breach of covenant for the entire nation. Now that might seem a little bit unfair. After all, it's not even as if the, the nation even knew that Achan had done this. Joshua had no idea Achan had taken some of the spoil of Jericho for himself. But Achan was a member of the nation. And just like in sports, an entire team is penalized when one player commits a foul, so Israel was charged with covenant-breaking for Achan's sin. Achan's sin was more than a mistake. It was a breach of promise, an act of war against God. And it put the entire nation in a terrible position because they all joined Achan in his guilt, in his sin, until it was purged from their, from their assembly. God takes his covenants and the purity of his people very seriously. That's why he dealt with Israel the way he did for Achan's sin. Uh, we see this reflected in the New Testament where we find God warning congregations of churches about failing to exercise discipline on members for unrepented sin. Uh, Paul confronted the Corinthian church when it was reported that they were boasting about how one of their members had taken his father's wife for his own. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He uses that same phrase, that same idea in his letter to the church of Galatia when he tells them to resist false teachers who are trying to pull the church back under the Mosaic law. Christ authorizes the church with the keys of his kingdom to exercise church discipline in Matthew 18 because he takes the assembly of his saints and the purity of his saints so seriously. And because sin has this covenant polluting effect on the entire body, he, he authorizes the church to do what he does. Uh, if you look at the letters that Jesus sends to the seven churches in Revelation, we see that Jesus warns some of those churches in particular that if they do not take their purity seriously, he will come against the whole group. So God takes the sin of an individual seriously and he sees it within the spectrum of the covenant. Achan's sin, therefore, had consequences, not just for himself, but for the whole nation because it was a, an assault against the very covenant of God's blessing on the people. It's an important Reminder to us as a church to likewise take the responsibility of church discipline very seriously, not to shirk away from protecting the purity of the bride of Christ. It's not a, it's not a, no one ever wants to do that, but yet there's still a responsibility that's there, and we see that here in our passage. The second consequence of Achan's sin was that God told the people he would not be with them until they had dealt with the person who had done this outrageous thing. If you remember back to chapter 1, God had told Joshua to be strong and courageous. And the reason he had told him to be strong and courageous is because he said, I am with you. And from the crossing of the Jordan River to the siege of Jericho, God had been with Joshua and the people. He had brought them victory. He had brought them deliverance. But as long as this breach in covenant remained, God said he would not be with them. Joshua was therefore right to be concerned the way he was in his prayer. He recognized that Israel didn't win at Ai because God hadn't gone with them to give them the victory. If God wasn't with Israel, they were going to perish, which is why Joshua was as fearful in his prayer as he is. The third effect of Achan's sin 
is that it polluted the whole nation. In verse 25, we see that after the devoted things had been discovered in Achan's tent, Joshua asked him, why did you bring trouble on us? Achan's sin was against the Lord and against the entire nation because he had dragged them into trouble by his rebellion. The fourth consequence of Achan's sin, and and the most personal, is that Achan's sin brought trouble on himself and on his family. Peeking back up there in uh, verse 25, after Joshua asks Achan why he brought trouble on the nation, he says, The Lord brings trouble on you today. And we see that Achan was executed by the nation uh, through stoning along with his family and everything that he owned. And then they were burned with fire and they were buried under a great pile of stone. The heap, we're told, is so large that at the time when our author writes this, he says it's recognizable even to that day. Now, while the, ex- while the execution of Achan, his family, his livestock, everything that he owned might seem cruel, we have to remember back to what we read in chapter 6. There is a stark connection between the way Achan is treated and the sentence that fell on Jericho. Achan became exactly like those who died in Jericho. For his disobedience and his unbelief, he effectively became a Canaanite and joined them in their punishment. There's a stark difference between the faith of Rahab, whereby she was joined to the assembly of Israel, and Achan's unbelief, which led to his destruction and the destruction of his whole house. God searches the mind and the heart, and he renders to each according to their works. Achan's works showed that he loved himself. He did not love God, he did not honor God, and so God's justice was poured out on him. Achan is a warning to God's people not to get lax and lazy in our fight against sin. If it happened to Achan, it can happen to us. There is a warning to be felt here, the way that Jesus' warnings to the church in Revelation are meant to be felt. God is a covenant keeper, and that means he is a covenant enforcer. His justice is a real thing. Which brings us to consider our final point, God's solution for covenant breakers. God's solution for covenant breakers. The reason the story of Achan is so hard to read is because at the core of this passage, we realize that we all are guilty of breaking God's commands. We are sinners like Achan. The good news of this chapter, it may not sound like there's good news in this chapter, but there is, and they come in the second part of verse 26 where we read eight important words. Eight important words. Catch these words. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. These eight words are heavy with great gospel news. God's anger did not remain on Israel forever for Achan's sin. He turned from his anger at the moment when his perfect righteous justice was upheld. When Achan sinned, he brought the stain of transgression on the entire nation of Israel. One man broke God's commandment, and it had serious consequences for everyone. In verse 26, we find that the guilt of that transgression was also removed by the justice that was administered on one man. Guilt was brought by one man, and righteousness was brought by one man. There is an ancient pattern here in the sin of Achan and the justice that came on him that we ourselves are linked to. 
It's the pattern that began in the Garden of Eden when Adam made a choice to take what was forbidden for him to break God's covenant commands. When he did that, he acted not just for himself, but for us all. And since then, humanity has been subjected to what has been called Adam's curse. Because we read in the New Testament, in Adam all die. We weren't there. We didn't take the forbidden fruit, but he did. And since then, each one of us is born with a sinful nature, a heart that's been infected with a rebelliousness that leads us on to continue to rebel against the holy, righteous rule of God. A problem of the human race, explains one theologian, is not most deeply that everybody does various kinds of sins. Behind all of our depravity, behind all of our guilt, behind all of our personal sinning, there is this mysterious connection or union with Adam, our father, who sinned. And we being in him in this mysterious way also sinned and die and are condemned. We are like Israel in this way because Israel was brought low by the sin of one man. Though we know we are each justly condemned because we are all, each one of us, covenant breakers, liars, idolaters, and thieves. Those eight words here, then the Lord turned from his burning anger, are sweet words to the sinner's ear. Because while the method for removing Israel's guilt in the case of Achan was to visit on him the curse of destruction that he justly deserved, the method that God has used to remove the stain of our sin from us, from all who trust in him, to save them, was to visit the curse of our sin upon the only righteous man who has ever walked the earth. That man has a name. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is able to purchase our righteousness with his active obedience and to ransom us from our sin and from our acts of rebellion and from our sinful nature by his perfect sacrifice. And that is why we have sung this morning. Because this is the God who rescues covenant breakers from the very source of their sin. Paul explains this mystery to us in the depths of Romans 5, which we've read this morning, but I'm going to revisit here. Starting in verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath. You see that? The burning anger of God. We have been rescued from that, saved from that by the blood of Christ. In verse 12 he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world by one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, it says in verse 15, the free gift is not like that trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, because that sin brought death. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, Paul says, but the free gift flowing has brought justification for if by or for if, for if because of one man's trespass 
death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Soak those words in, my friends. Soak them in. Because while we're all guilty as covenant breakers with the man Achan, though we're all vulnerable to the same temptation, deserving of the same death, deserving of the same burning anger that God had towards him to be poured out on us because of our sin, God has turned from his wrath toward men and women like us because that justice fell on another, the man Christ Jesus. His righteous life, his atoning sacrifice are what have secured atonement and justification and sanctification and glorification for all who shelter themselves in him by faith. In Adam all die. But in Christ, the second and better Adam, all who believe are made alive and are secured in this unbreakable bond, a new and better covenant, secured, sealed, and delivered by the precious blood of Jesus. It might feel unfair when you have to live with the consequences of someone else's decision. But there is no arguing the reality of the effect of Adam's sin on our lives. We are born rebels we gladly live as rebels our sin may not be the same as adam's but we bear its fruit hating god hating each other loving ourselves and committing the same sins that led Achan to his destruction the good news of the gospel is that in the same way that death has come to us so life has come to us in the same way that in adam all die so also in christ will all be made alive His death was our death, and therefore his life has become our life. This morning we have sung the praises of our King and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ the righteous. We see the same pattern of how God rescues people from the rule of sin in the way he rescued Israel from Achan's guilt. Though in our case, God has turned from his burning anger towards us because the curse of our sin did not fall on us, but it fell on another, on Christ, who has paid that penalty in full. Christ is God's answer for rescuing covenant breakers like Israel and like you and like me. But understand that while the gift of God's grace is free, it can only be received by those by linking ourselves to Christ in faith. Paul says in Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and that we have access to this peace through faith into that grace in which we stand. It's in this peace that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, even in the midst of suffering, because we know that God is at work in all things for our good and for the glory of our King. But let Achan be a warning, friends. Achan was not spared. And when we investigate his crime, we find that his sin was fundamentally a failure to believe God and a failure to satisfy himself in the glory and the priorities of God. The mercy and the grace of God in Christ comes freely to all who trust in him by faith. And this is the day of mercy. Do not give in to the lies that Achan believed. 
You will not be happier by trying to gratify yourselves with lesser things. You cannot hide your sin forever, and your sin is no private matter. Now there are two duties to this good news, that God is that God is a God who rescues covenant breakers. Two duties. The first duty is to take hold of this news by faith. There is not a person in here who has not broken God's righteous law. This is the only antidote to your sin. We can't even keep the moral standards of our own heart, let alone the righteous standards of God. We need rescue, and God's great plan of salvation is to save sinners through the work of King Jesus. So the first duty of this gospel is to seek the Lord in faith while he may be found and to receive his grace by faith in his Son. The second duty is for those who have believed that already. For us, our duty is to share this news of salvation with the world. Now, you don't have to be called to a foreign land to speak to someone about how God rescued you from your sin. Though I do pray that God will raise up men and women from our church to go and to tell, as he has in the past. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker. You don't even have to be compelling to tell your neighbor about how Jesus changed your life and to tell them about how he can change theirs. You just have to open your mouth and speak out of the overflow of the joy of what God has done for you and to trust God to work in that person the way he worked in your life. One of the most encouraging passages in the Bible is that Canaanite woman that brought her whole town to Jesus. She said, she, she was a woman of ill repute. She says seven words, and an entire town comes to Jesus. Come and see a man who knows everything that I did. God saved a town through that? If he can use that, he can use you. Okay? We are called to be sowers of gospel seed. The power of our message is not in the way we speak, but in the substance of what we speak, and of the power of the God who rescues. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is, a, this is a hard passage to read because when we see Achan, we could, each one of us, take our name and place it in the blank and it would be just for us to, to, to endure Achan's, the, the penalty that was poured out on him. Father, thank you for those eight important words that you turned from your burning anger when your justice was upheld. Thank you all the more that the way you have turned your burning anger away from your people is because that anger and that wrath fell on Christ who has paid for sin, who has atoned for our iniquity, who has erased our guilt, clothed us in righteousness, made us alive in Him, and who has secured for us an eternal treasury in heaven. Father, it's in great hope that we wait on that joy and we wait on that peace. And even now, as we wait upon it, I pray that you would give us peace and endurance. That in your time of patience towards this world, we would be diligent to dedicate ourselves to your priorities and to the furthering of the kingdom of our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. I pray all this in the glorious name of King Jesus. Amen.